Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce Attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, the president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I'm honored and delighted to have two of our brilliant attorneys, Alyssa Klein, who's been with the firm for over seven years, been focusing very heavily on H-1B, non-immigrant-related issues and visa-related matters, and Zachary Hogan, who's... Uh, who was a U.S. consular officer, most recently in Indonesia, was with the Department of State, and another brilliant addition to the incredible, smart, cutting-edge services provided by the Murthy Law Firm. So today's topic, as most of you are aware, is dealing with visa-related issues, matters at the U.S. consulate, current visa issues at U.S. consular posts across the world. And so we thought we would share some information and go over some of the overview of issues that you as employers need to be aware of when your employees travel and come abroad and maybe travel from abroad. And maybe some of you have to deal with issues yourselves if you're not U.S. citizens or U.S. passport holders. We also wish to thank Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited uh, based in Chennai, India with offices, liaison offices in Hyderabad, India, and Mumbai, India, where they speak and deal with complex visa-related issues, H-4, H-1B visa stamp denials, B-1, B-2 denials for family members, parents, uh, F-1 denials, etc., or issues that when people have questions. Uh, and they're, they're available on murthyindia.com, but they always give us updated information on what's going on at the different consulates, particularly in India, which is one of the heaviest employment-based consular processing posts in the world. With that, I'm going to start with questioning about, so Alyssa, there's a whole bunch of issues dealing with delays with visa processing. I understand the times have gone really from like few days, few weeks to now probably even longer. So what's the story and what's happening and how can people try to get faster appointments? Right. So there has been a huge uh, increase in delays for visa processing, especially over the last few months. Uh, but it, it's not just the last few months. Over the last five years, there's been an increase of 80% for visas from, from India to the U.S. consulates. So most recently, there's been a, a big spike, which I know, Zach, you're going to address what they're doing to resolve it. But what's important to understand is that these appointment slots for visa applications are based on the availability of consular officers. And this is further determined based on agreements between the U.S. and Indian governments. Okay, So we have certain visas, such as B1, B2 for visitors, uh, F1s for students. And these particular visa appointments are supposed to have less than 20-day wait time. So what happens is when we have an increase in volume, something someone who maybe needs an H or an L, which doesn't have a prescribed time window like that, they're going to experience delays. And in some cases, this can be up to three or four months uh, just for an appointment. Okay. So when you said 80% now, I thought you meant wait time has increased by 80%. What you're saying is that the demand for demand. visas mm -hmm. has increased by 80% exactly. in India. Exactly. Okay, good. I'm thank, thank you for that clarification. 
Um, so, Zach, what's the story? Yeah, so in, in that same time frame, it's very unlikely that the consular officers would have increased 80%. So it requires some juggling in the State Department and, and uh, you know, consultations with and negotiations with the Indian government in order to get more officers to India to do the interviews. Um, the good news is that in the last couple months, the State Department announced that there would be additional officers and additional appointment slots open in India until December of this year. These are likely temporary officers brought in uh, just for a matter of a few months in order to help them reduce that backlog. Uh, but the mission to India is encouraging applicants to try to apply now during this time when they have additional staffing in order to cover um, some of these these additional demand in visa cases. Okay. So again, when you said the U.S. and the Indian governments have to discuss this, can you explain to most of us as lay people who have not worked in the Department of State, why exactly the two governments are so actively involved in this? Why does Indian government have anything to do with issuance of U.S. visas? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the number of diplomats or consular officers that one country is allowed to have in another and the number of diplomatic visas that are available is determined through negotiations between the countries. And there is a lot that goes into these negotiations from you know the reasons why certain types of officers are needed um, to the size of the mission currently and the the nature of the partnership between the two countries. So these are sensitive, have all kinds of implications for the wider relationship. And part of that is consular officers. And so I think, you know, both the Indian and the U.S. governments realize this demand and that the reasons for this demand are the strong partnership between the U.S. and India. And they are looking for ways to increase the number of consular officers, even just for temporary amounts of time, in order to help this backlog, help Indian visitors who want to visit the U.S. get here and um, thereby strengthen the, the relationship even further. Okay. Wow, that's very interesting. Thank you for giving us a little bit of historical and uh, uh, political and social, I guess, uh, decision of strategic uh, partnerships why we get into all of this. Um, also, do they have to provide security staff and stuff? Is that paid by the government of India? No, that's paid by the U.S. consulate directly, right? Um, it, it's partly both. Usually diplomatic missions in foreign countries are, the security of those are um, guaranteed by the host country. Okay. But there's other, yeah, with security, there's a whole different set of negotiations. Okay, okay. So let's move on to the issue dealing with, I was just curious, so I mm -hmm. had to ask those questions. <laughs> Uh, so there are other delays in visa processing issues. I know routinely H-1B uh, or L-1 employees or even B-1, B-2 applicants, F-1, will come come or call call on consultations and speak with one of us and say, I got a blue sheet, a 221G, you know, administrative processing delay. So what exactly is administrative processing? What does it mean? Why Why do they get it? Where does this go to and how can they get around it? So administrative processing itself is just kind of a catch-all phrase that consular officers and the Department of State use for cases, visa cases, where the officer is not able to make a decision right there at the window. And so these interviews are normally fast, a few minutes, but you know there are a lot of things that go into this decision. And if their officer is not able to make it right then and there, they'll give the applicant a letter saying that their visa has been refused. It's technically refused under Section 221G. Um, which means they could be requiring additional documents. There may be some kind of internal review. Or one of the biggest ones, and actually I think the reason that this phrase administrative processing was even coined, is for security clearances. And so when the consular officer is looking at their computer during the interview and all this information on there, um, sometimes there's information in the system that requires the consular officer to refer the case for what's called a security advisory opinion, or an SAO. Mm -hmm. And this isn't something that's done at the consulate. This is done with all kinds of government agencies and organizations here in the states. And so this, if, if a security advisory opinion is required, for whatever reason, the consular officer won't know, 
um, it's not discretionary for the consular officer. So they have to refuse the applicant under 221G, and they have to refer this case for a security advisory opinion. And because it's not based in the consulate, the, the process can't be ex- expedited from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a common request is, you know, it's already been a month, two months, three months. Can my case be expedited? If it's a security advisory opinion, it can't be. The other problem is that consular officers cannot say anything other than the case requires additional administrative processing. Mm-hmm. So if it's security related, the applicant won't know. And that's part of the frustration because this is a catch, catch-all phrase, administrative processing. Sometimes the consulate is involved and sometimes they're not. You don't really know what's going on behind the scenes there at the consulate. Yeah, I remember recently we were talking to a client and they were getting really upset because nobody had apparently told them that they would be, in that person's, it was uh, more like a dual use technology issue. And so it's not a full-fledged SAO, but it's still, you know, investigation to ensure that there isn't. So for those who are not familiar with the dual-use technology, if you study, for example, chemical engineering or master's or PhD in chemistry, your field of study can be used for both good uses and bad uses. So that's the dual-use technology. And so if people have got biotechnology, some of your key employees, they think they're going home for a week's Christmas, New Year vacation, and they're stuck for six or eight months, or three, two or three months are very common in dual-use technology cases, um, then it's because they have to get this clearance each time that they travel abroad because the visa that they're issued is generally only valid for one year. So if they waited a year and then went home, as people tend to do, one, you know, about once every year, once every two years, then that's obviously going to be a problem. And, uh, oh, sorry, you, you mentioned that's two to three months for the dual-use technology. For other security clearances, it was taking six to eight months mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. pretty recently. And when you check in for your, a status update from the consulate, all they'll tell you is that it's still undergoing administrative processing. And even in dual-use, we've seen six to eight months, but, you know, most people then lose their jobs because their employers aren't willing to wait f- for eight months for an employee to come back to work. And it's pretty devastating. So we tell people, if you don't have to go abroad, you really need to avoid it. Have your family come and visit you uh, in the U.S. because they won't have the same issue. And obviously, we've, as, as might have been alluded to in our discussion right now, that the other reasons that we have for administrative processing involve the officer needing more time to make a decision, including possible ineligibilities. When they have to refer the case to the anti-fraud unit or AFU, the fraud prevention unit, for an investigation or preparing a revocation memo for a consular return of a petition, as many of us have seen where there's, where there's a mismatch, the end client letter doesn't provide the right name or doesn't provide the right duration, or they believe there's fraud or tampering with the end client letter, which has happens, unfortunately, and we as employers need to be very careful not to say, let me put that clarification and just make this little change that clarifies it. Uh-uh. That's called document tampering, and that's fraud. And even though in some countries doing that may not be as big a deal, as most of us know in America, it is huge. It's a very big deal. So, Alyssa, it's been a while since we heard from you, so we need to know what kind of documentation will be required in such cases. So so unlike the security checks, something that I've seen a lot of with our clients are uh, 221G cases where they're asking for specific documents. 
normally because the individual is placed at a third party site, they're in IT consulting, and they don't have the the documents that the officer needs to be able to verify that the job as described in the case does exist. And we're talking about contracts uh, between the employer petitioner, the vendor, if there are, and, and verification from the end client themselves. And as we all know, end clients don't always provide letters. Mm-hmm. And not every employer is always going to be able to get confidential contracts and and agreements um, from, you know, companies, you know, two, three uh, layers down from, from their contract agreement. So in that case, the consular officer is going to specifically ask for the missing documents. And the the applicant and their employer should really work to provide the specific items requested. And not only could it be project-specific documents, it could be company data. Sometimes we see them ask for financial evidence from the company, um, evidence of other employees' pay. Mm -hmm. And this becomes tricky because employers aren't always going to release this to their employees. Um, Needless to say, if the consulate isn't able to verify the information that they need, that person's going to have a hard time getting the visa. Um, And, you know, in certain cases, the consulate may go one further and not just ask for the documents, but may reach out directly to the client themselves. So your client or your vendor company may get phone calls or emails from a government representative asking to verify their their project. And although the importance of end client letters is obviously critical in many cases and was in fact at one point referred to and required, we know that the USCIS in their frequently asked questions back several years ago, thanks to a letter, I believe partially at least because Senator Corrin um, in Texas had written, and I think part of it was the organization called the ID Serve Alliance, which used, uh, contacted their sen- U.S. senator to get the, the, to write to the USCIS service center director to revisit the issue because not many of the technology can, consulting companies cannot obtain the proper client and client letter, as Alyssa just mentioned, or even if they can get it, it won't have every single little piece filled to the perfect satisfaction of the USCIS or the consular officer, but you provide the evidence you have, you provide alternative backup evidence, you make the best case you can, you present the strongest evidence that proves and establishes that the person is working there, is considered a part. Even sometimes we've used in the past letters where the employee writes to the employer, the end client employer, and says, I understand your policy is not to provide us client client letters, and they write back saying, yep, so sorry, that's our company policy. We're not allowed to do that. Well, guess what? There was just a legal communication by that company with their dot-com website, which shows that there is, in fact, a relationship. So it's not just... Uh, so that sort of establishes, to some extent, some evidence and establishes the bona fides of the relationship. Okay, so that's for the administrative pol- uh, processing delays. Now we go changing gears to the interview waiver program. As many of you know that there's, it is possible in certain situations to avoid delays associated with the shortage of interview appointments because if you're lucky enough or your employee is lucky enough, there is no need for an interview and all documents can be sent to the U.S. consulate via an appropriate courier service. And this is available in very specific situations like visa renewals, or depend and and of course it can vary depending on the country 
the level of risk that they foresee, uh, which have different criteria for different countries. So with that, I'm going to ask Zach to speak a little bit about India um, and maybe touch upon other countries as well. Sure. So the the interview waiver program um, criteria are on the website usually the travel the travel docs website the courier or the um, the uh, GSS service that provides application and document re- return services and possibly even on the on the consulate or, or embassy website depending on the country. Um, in India, the current criteria are listed on the travel docs website and. Um, for for work-related non-immigrant visas, H and L visas qualify for the interview waiver program, but that's only individual Ls, not the blanket Ls. And so the criteria currently listed are you have to have previously been approved for a visa in the same class, so you've had an H visa and you're renewing that H visa. Um, your previous visa is either unexpired or expired less than 12 months ago, so that visa should either still be facially valid or only have expired within the last year. Uh, the previous visa was issued in India. So if, for example, you went to Canada just to get a, a brief trip overseas to get a new visa and then came back to the U.S., you can't use that Canadian-issued visa to up to use the interview waiver program in India. It has to be a visa that was approved in India. And then the last is that you have no re- visa refusals for any type of visa since your last visa issuance. So they want to see that the last visa you got was an approval, not a refusal for any reason, um, and then you satisfy the criteria. And when an applicant goes onto the Travel Docs website and starts answering the questions related to their visa application, it will take the applicant through some steps to see whether they qualify for this program. Uh, the The program isn't always right. That if you answer certain questions certain ways, maybe you're not actually qualified for the visa waiver program or the interview waiver program. Um, but it's it's usually pretty good. Um, so then if you do qualify for the interview waiver program, you send certain documents to the consulate via courier rather than having to wait for an interview appointment. Um, so for example, an H-1B applicant should submit pay stubs from their employer because this is a renewal, so they should show that they've had this relationship with their employer. Um, bank statements covering the last 12 months, client or vendor letters if applicable, contact information for managers. This goes back to what we were discussing where sometimes the consulate will uh, call or reach out to clients or vendors to confirm this employment relationship, this contractual relationship. Um, also W-2 and 1040 tax f- forms for the applicant, as well as a resume or a CV. Okay. And is the visa ever, uh, is it guaranteed any time, or is that something that anyone can ever take for granted? Right, now you can't take it for granted. And even though you may be eligible for the interview waiver program, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get it by this means. So uh, first to note is that the consulate actually has a minimum percentage that they have to randomly select to call in for an interview, okay? And that's just purely random. The second uh, thing to keep in mind is that the officer can request the waiver applicant to attend an, an interview if they deem it necessary. And it could be for reasons such as Zach pointed out where maybe they should have not been considered eligible Okay, but it went through anyway. So just because somebody thinks that they're able to do it and apply this way, they shouldn't necessarily feel that they're 100 percent guaranteed to get it. And they they could very well be called in. Sure. I'll add a couple of things on that. So um, actually, an officer can't refuse an applicant if they've sent in everything through the waiver um, 
this interview waiver program. So if they have some questions about the eligibility of the person, they, they won't just refuse the person. They'll call them in for an interview mm. instead. Um, the other thing is that I've heard of cases where an applicant actually stays in the United States and sends their passport yes. with somebody to India to use this waiver program for a new visa. There are a number of problems with that. One of them is that when a consular officer is adjudicating a waiver case, one of just the standard checks is to look at the arrival and departure system to make sure there are no overstays of the I-94 card. And when they see that the person hasn't even departed the United States, that's a pretty good uh, <laughs> evidence that the person actually isn't in India applying for this visa. And so they can uh, call the person in for an interview. And in some cases, I've heard of cases like this, even just schedule the person for a time saying, come in in two days at this time, because they know the person's in India or in the United States and is not actually applying from, from India. So is that an automatic reason then for the denial of that case or what happens? Or do they make a notation about how does that work? There would be a notation. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how, I don't know if you know, Lissy, or I had this come cases. up once before. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how, how they resolved it. But obviously, I think the first it should be how do you get your passport back? Yeah, I, I think, think in the olden days, before they did the um, uh, some, such detailed monitoring of people in and out of the U.S., and I think some of us are dating ourselves potentially possibly back before September 11th, we didn't have many of these checks and balances. So people would routinely say, oh, I don't want to go back. I don't want to get stuck. You know what? My mother or my friend's going. They'll just take it. And they'll tell, answer every question truthfully, you know, on the, on the DS, back in those days, DS, you know, um, or OF, I think, OF-156 or whatever they used to call it before the online version. And so they would get the visa back, hallelujah, they were celebrating, there was, you know, champagne, everybody was thrilled. But now with the monitoring and in and out and all of the different uh, security issues, that option is no longer available. And really, I think there's also some kind of a crime because passport is supposed to be part of your body or something in most country governments. So giving your passport to somebody else is potentially like separating you from something that should be an integral part of your body. So again, little things to mind. Also, of course, uh, even though we're focusing obviously on employment related H1 and L1 visas, B1, which are business visas for some of your employees that may come from meetings or whatever, or to take specs or enjoy the benefit of the same interview waiver program as so the B1, B2s enjoy it as well. Um, okay, so with that, let's go to sharing some of the wonderful tips for success at visa interviews for you, your company's employees when they go abroad. As many of you know, the consular officers can sometimes have 30, 40, 50, 60, even 100 visa appointments in a day. That deserves a separate medal and an award in and of itself. I mean, it's so they literally have two to three minutes to check you out, look at the tone, look at your demeanor, look at how you respond to questions. They really don't focus on documents because I have people all the time say to me, but they didn't read the stacks and stacks of documents that I prepared and I spent oodles and I hired a visa consultant and I spent all this time and I always say, use that time to get your headspace together. Don't go with this deer in the headlights look. Don't freeze when they ask you a question. Answer honestly, answer truthfully, be relaxed. There, no one's going to eat you up. The worst thing is they won't give you the visa. The best thing is you'll get it, but you'll enjoy the process more if you enjoy it and you enjoy talking to them. Because the last thing, if you're doing 100 visa appointments a day, the last thing you want to do is have people who are not answering questions and you think are not being forthright and direct and making eye contact and smiling at you and making it a pleasant few minutes to go by. So as I was just saying, since they conduct thousands of interviews each year, 
they immediately have a very good sixth sense of whether the case or the applicant is being honest and forthright and what they would consider, you know, transparent, typical, et cetera. Um, Zach, did you want to add something? Yeah, sure. Uh, like, like you said, you know, the, the officer typically has two to three minutes to make a decision, but I would say usually it doesn't even take that long to get a pretty good first impression. In the first few seconds of the interview, uh, the officer, because they just do so many of these one after another, has a good sense of, of this applicant and, and whether, you know, whether they think they're telling the truth. Um, and then we'll spend the rest of the time either confirming or, or, or denying that, that first initial um, sense of the applicant. And so what we recommend people do, and as a consular officer, I can, former consular officer, I can say that one thing that's useful for applicants is that they should you know, be well prepared and they should be confident and knowledgeable. The consular officer has not been reviewing the petition, has not been reviewing this application for a long time. They're not you know, focusing on little details to catch somebody. The applicant's the one who knows the details or should know the details of this petition, of the, de- of the reasons why they're going to the United States. And so just being well prepared and, and that they're able to talk about their employer, their position, salary, benefits, and clients, you know, just the details of the reasons they want to go to the U.S. is, is really helpful for an applicant. And being knowledgeable and confident. So you're know, speaking clearly and succinctly to the officer when they ask a question. I've done a number of interviews where I asked people, you know, would, would have asked people why they want to go to the U.S. and they'll just say work. And, you know, that doesn't give the consular officer much to go on, mm-hmm. and nor does it inspire a lot of confidence in the consular officer that this person really knows why they're going, and they're going for the reasons they say they're going. Um, and so as Zach is saying, the most important thing really is read the petition. If it's an HRL petition and you're the employee or you're, you're sending your employee as the employer because you're on this conference call today, let them read it. Read it once. Maybe they read it five times to know because a lot of computer programmers, I know, I know I'm sure they're brilliant in their technology and computer skills, but their English language skills or ability to communicate isn't great. So like Zach just said, they say work. They're like, of course, every idiot knows what's work. It's like, what kind of stupid question is that? But the consular officer wants more details. What's the work? Where's the work? What kind of job duties? What are you doing? Why are you going? How long is the project? You need to know all of that. In your at your back of your head to be able to spew it out in a confident manner and dress properly, look proper, smile. I tell people, just make it. If you were on the other side of the window, wouldn't you like somebody who's pleasant and confident and comfortable with themselves to speak to you? But a lot of times people, you know, culturally, sort of a different mentality. Some cultures, you don't look a person in the eye. Even in India, sometimes when you respect a person, you look away because they give, want to give you respect. But I tell people, when Americans apply for the India visa, for example, let them figure out Indian tradition and learn not to look in the eye. But when you're applying to go to their country, we need to learn their rules and their system of thinking. It's just, you know, that's the way it is. And what about how does this whole simio solution stuff come into play? Right. No, exactly. Because as confident as somebody is, if their petition is out of date, they're not going to get their visa. Mm. And this is a huge issue for IT consulting companies. And for those employers, you know, you know, we know how fast-paced it is. We know how quickly projects can change. And the Simeo Solutions decision now requires these H-1B amendments to be filed to relocate someone to a new location if you need a new LCA. That usually means a person's changing projects, okay? So, you know, it, it's the, the struggle, I think, is to make sure that there is communication between the employer and the employee to stay aware, 
you know, uh, make sure there's communication, okay? So everybody knows, hey, your amendment's filed. You can go and go to that new project. But, hey, if you need to travel, you need that approval, okay? So if there is an under a previous petition that was approved, you've relocated, the amendment was filed, and then you're going to travel, that amendment has to be approved for you to go and, and apply for the, for the visa, okay? So if... So if there's any change if of there's office any locations change, and clients... Really, and if there's any mm-hmm. doubt that... That is an amendment required or not, based on Simio Solutions and how USCIS has implemented that into their policies, really do take a consultation with an attorney just to figure out, is my original petition still good or not? Do I need to file an amendment before I go for a visa application? Or just to stay in status? And okay. Consular officers were, uh, there, a cable came out after Simio Solutions instructing consular officers to look into this specifically. So I think for H-1B renewals, you're going to get a question about office location um, and the other details in the LCA and in the petition. Interesting. It's always good to get the details of what goes on behind the (laughs) curtains, right, from the training in terms of consular officers. So I'm sure some of you have heard, at least because we've written a few articles about prudential visa revocations, prudential revocations of visas on multi.com. We've written an article close to a year ago. I think from about a year ago, since October of 2015, um, the the, the Department of State had sent something out to consular officers, but publicly the memo was only released fairly recently in the last two or three months, uh, I think August, September of 2016, to the American Immigration Lawyers Association or ALA. And so this whole issue of prudential revocations is a fairly hot issue. So maybe, Zach, you can explain a little bit when it applies and how we can get over it. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a hot issue and one that even the government's still working out exactly how they're going to apply this policy. Um, So because typically, the consular officer overseas is not allowed to revoke the visa of somebody who's in the United States. And that's what's called prudential revocation, is when a consulate officer overseas revokes a visa. Because the State Department here in the United States can revoke visas if they have cause to do so. Um, But so uh, the recent exception to this rule that consular officers overseas cannot revoke visas is for uh, visa holders who have even been arrested for DUIs. So it's not even a conviction needed, unlike criminal grounds uh, ineligibilities. It's just an arrest. And so when someone's arrested, they're typically fingerprinted, and these fingerprints go into the FBI database that then is filtered around to various government agencies, including the Department of State. So overseas, the consular office will get a notification in the system that this person has been arrested for a DUI and then is required by State Department rules to revoke that individual's visa. And they're supposed to be... Hey, this is sounding like what we just said. You can't take your passport out of the country. It sounds like <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to revoke the visa from outside of the United States. Yeah. Sounds very unfair. Yeah, and, and in almost every other case, or in every other case, a, a consular officer on their own can't revoke someone's visa if they're in the United so if States. So if they've taken fingerprints, for example, for shoplifting, then you can't have a prudential revocation. Right. It's only, it's only for, for DUI. DUI arrests. Because of the public health safety? Exactly. Of, so hmm. the... The guidance instructs the consular officer to to both refuse the visa and then enter a note in the system that this applicant should be referred to what's called a panel physician in order to determine whether they have any medical ineligibilities. So because it's DUI, specifically alcoholism or drug abuse reasons, why this person may be ineligible for their next visa. But um, this is only a revocation of, of the visa. Of course, it shouldn't affect the status of the person who is here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've seen some problems with that. Uh, typically, we've seen students who are in F status who have been denied an immigration benefit by USCIS, like uh, OPT or the Employment Authorization Document, 
because of this visa revocation. So even though the person's still in valid F1 status, their visa was revoked, and then for some reason, US, USCIS has, um, has denied this benefit. I think because a lot of times the DSOs, the designated school officials or the international student advisors are so clueless. Pardon me. I hope if any of you are on the call, um, I'm sure it's not you because you're investing in yourself to learn and to understand issues. But so many international student advisors have no idea about immigration law, don't understand the implications. When they see the prudential, they say, oh, you're out of status. You need to pack up and leave. Go away. You're done. You're, you're out of status. You're now illegal. And they basically cancel sometimes the terminate the CVIS record for that poor student who then is told, you're, now that your student CVS uh, record is canceled, you're not in status. So now they have to pack up and leave the country when none of that was required because the visa revocation is different, as we all know. A visa stamp is the foil, as different from the status of the person in the United States. But even though those terms are used very loosely and interchangeably with each other. Okay, so that was a quick... Uh, scary part that's been going on more recently. So let's talk a little bit because I know some of you as employers have started setting up foreign companies, branches or affiliates. You have L1s and you have individual L1s. But if you are lucky enough and large enough to qualify because of the volume uh, of the number of L1s you process each year or the number of uh, employees that you have global worldwide or your gross revenues or a combination thereof, you can actually enjoy the benefits of an L1 blanket and we're seeing that blanket L visas tend to be looked at far more strictly and scrutinized, and they're more frequently denied. Um, and they can only approve, a consular officer is only allowed to approve an L1 blanket visa if the visa is clearly approvable, uh, which sounds like a slightly higher standard, actually is a higher standard than the average case where you have the preponderance of the evidence, which I know I've talked about from time to time in various talks, because in most civil cases, you're only required to show that the case is more likely than not eligible for the approval, which is the preponderance of the evidence standard. And the next highest is clear and convincing evidence in quasi-criminal proceedings. So this is sounding closer to that quasi-criminal proceeding. And then in pure criminal proceedings, you have the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, beyond a shred of evidence, so to speak. So Alyssa, can you explain what this, uh, how this works with the blankets? Right. So with the blankets, the individual is not going to the consulate with uh, USCIS approval for their specific qualification for the L-1. So it really is up to the individual applying for the blanket visa to be able to articulate to the officer how they meet the requirements for L-1. Now, the consular officer is going to have to initially be satisfied that there's a proper uh, blanket approval in place for, for the petitioning organization. Um, but after that, the individual is in the interview going to have to be able to explain to the consular officer how their employment abroad qualifies and how the offered position in the U.S. Um, qualifies for L1. So for to meet these two requirements, the position abroad needs to be for 12 months within the last three years, and it needs to either have been an executive, managerial, or specialized knowledge position. 
And then the position offered in the U.S. has to be either a managerial, executive, or specialized knowledge position. And it really is up to the, again, like with these other interviews that we've talked about, really up to the individual to be able to articulate this effectively to the officer. Mm -hmm. Um, For whatever reason, that officer is not satisfied. uh, They're going to have to go through the individual L1 petition process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, as you can see, the issue of visa matters is no light matter. It's a constantly evolving, pretty complex area. Uh, It's become obviously a much, much bigger deal in a post-September 11th world where people are, the U.S. government uh, is considerably concerned about who is coming in, the background of the countries, the background of the people, the age factors, a whole bunch of factors are taken into consideration in determining the level of security risk of the person. So when you think that you as an employer have with great difficulty staying up nights and weekends and f- getting this fabulous, starting your company, getting things uh, uh, you know, uh, going, and then you get this fantastic client contract that you're so excited about, and now you try to run ads and you don't get the right person to come in and enough applicants in the United States because we have a shortage of STEM, prof- STEM professionals coming into the country. You then bring this, you get these fabulous H-1B uh, applicants, potential applicants, or and then there's the whole issue of the cap gap and the cap being subject. But even if you get someone in the U.S. who's on F1 a STEM student, you now bring them here. They go home for a short vacation, come back, and guess what? They're not coming back or they're stuck for six or eight months like you heard us talk about the security advisory opinions. There's so many things that you as employers need to watch out for. We thought it was extremely important to share visa-related matters. And again, we're so thrilled and delighted to have two of our brilliant lawyers, Alyssa Klein and Zach, and Zach in particular with his background as being a U.S. Department of State consular officer most recently in Indonesia, share some of his insights with us to help you as our valued clients. Uh, And one last point before we let you go, because we are mindful of the 45-minute time frame we look at, is after all of that, even if your candidate finally obtains the visa and enters the U.S., you then have the CBP or the Customs and Border Protection officer can look at that person and for some reason think, okay, this person really isn't eligible. We've seen this fairly often, unfortunately, in Chicago at the Chicago airport or what's called the POE, the port of entry, where the officer will say, well, it looks like I've looked, they look, they check, they ask to see laptops of people, phones for people can be examined uh, by the border agents, and then they can prevent you from entering the U.S. and send you back on the next flight. And if that were to happen, we tell people, please ask them to give me a Section 275 withdrawal of my request to enter the U.S. instead of getting an expedited removal, which has a minimum five-year bar or ban to re-enter the U.S., and you don't want to be in deportation court. You don't want to have a removal on your record if you can help it. Uh, It sounds like we've touched the tip of the iceberg. There's so much going on. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Alyssa Klein, on behalf of Zachary Hogan, and each of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, We thank you for joining us this afternoon to understand visa-related matters, and we wish you a wonderful fall. Thank you so much, and have a great day.